Today is a significant day. Uh, it's significant in the life of the found community and it's significant because this is our first official Sunday gathering uh, as, as a church community, as a faith community. Uh, but it's actually significant too for other reasons. Today, um, and I doubt that you would know this, but 75 years ago today, to this day, on the 14th of August, 1941, a man that I like to refer to as Saint Max actually passed away. He died. And uh, his, his real name is Maximilian Maria Colby. And uh, judging by that photo, he was possibly the original hipster. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's highly possible. Um, and uh, Maximilian Maria Colby w was in many ways a very ordinary man. He, he was a Catholic priest. Uh, he uh, was raised by a, a German father and a Polish mother. He grew up in Poland and uh, he uh, felt the, the call to ministry to, to um, join uh, the Catholic order uh, at a relatively young age. And uh, he came to be in a monastery in Poland at the time that the Germans invaded Poland, sparking World War II. And so this ordinary man um, gave shelter to refugees. This ordinary man decided that uh, he would set up the monastery as a temporary hospital uh, for the community as they dealt with uh, the invaders. This ordinary man had the opportunity to sign uh, what was called the German People's List. And essentially, the German People's List would recognise that Maximilian had a German father, and in recognising that Maximilian had a German father, he would basically be granted the rights of a German citizen, which would essentially have ensured and assured his safety. But he refused. He refused Nazi allegiance, and in doing so, refusing to sign the document, pretty much guaranteed that he had no safe future in a country that was being invaded by Poland. The Germans eventually overtook his town, they uh, captured the monastery, they shut down the hospital, and uh, Maximilian and four other monks were imprisoned by the German Gestapo. And about three months later, uh, Maximilian was transferred to Auschwitz concentration camp. And there, uh, he spent his time continuing uh, to serve as a priest, which got him into a lot of trouble with, with the Nazi and the German Gestapo. He, he would, as a consequence of continuing to fulfill what he felt was the call on his life, uh, cop violent beatings. And to the point that his fellow inmates used to try and, on occasion, smuggle him to the prison hospital just to make sure that he could be checked over and looked after. In uh, July, around July uh, 1941, three prisoners went missing. They're not sure if they escaped, so they don't know really. But essentially, the deputy camp commander decided that the best way to deter further prisoners going missing was to select ten men at complete random, ten men who he would place in this starvation bunker essentially to try and teach the other prisoners a lesson. And as he selected these men at random, one of the men cried out, my wife, my child, oh, I'll never see them again. And at that, Maximilian stepped forward. He didn't even know this guy, but he stepped forward and he said, oh, I'll take his place. The deputy camp commander agreed, and so Maximilian joined nine other prisoners in this starvation bunker. Two weeks later, he was the last man standing of the ten. 
nine others had passed away. And on the 14th of August, 1941, 75 years ago today, the Germans decided that they wanted to clear the bunker and so they gave him a lethal injection. He passed away and the next day he was cremated. This is, this is the day that we celebrate an ordinary man. And, and it's significant for me that St. Max is part of that celebration for us because in many ways he kind of describes for me what it means, and, and this is a bit what I want to share about briefly tonight, what it means to live as an ordinary radical. Maximilian was an ordinary man. He made some extraordinary choices, but he was ordinary nonetheless. And 41 years later, uh, the, the then Pope, Pope John Paul II, recognised Maximilian Kolbe uh, because of his life, because of his uh, amazing acts of selfless love and humility and service, and he was essentially, became a saint. He was canonised by the Catholic Church. And 41 years later, there was a man at that event, at his canonisation, that had a particular affinity with Maximilian. This was the man that Maximilian had stepped into the line for. 41 years later, this man stood at the canonization of the man who had saved his life. What an extraordinary event to be able to turn up to something where the guy that had selflessly chosen to take his place, he was present at. In Mark chapter 6, so beautifully read by Mina, we hear a story about people of Jesus' time being offended by his ordinariness. They're offended by how seemingly normal this guy is. Jesus lived and breathed in the ordinary, and people were offended by it. They said things such as, he's just, he's just the son of a carpenter. He did his apprenticeship in Joseph's carpentry workshop. He, isn't that his mum over there? Isn't that his family? Who is this guy? And the more they kind of understood him to be such an ordinary person, the more they became indignant, the more they became offended by his presence, the more that they struggled to reconcile the ordinary nature of this man who was supposed to be an amazing prophet uh, and, and possibly the coming Messiah in their understanding of the reading of the scripture, they struggled to reconcile the ordinariness of Jesus' life. And I, as I was uh, reading that uh, passage over the course of the week and, and kind of preparing for tonight, I had to wonder whether I am too. Am I okay? Am I okay with the ordinariness of Jesus' life? Are you okay with the ordinariness of Jesus' life? Because we live in a world where we exalt and we worship the extraordinary. We worship the best and the remarkable. We're at the time of the Olympics. We worship the champions and we, and we, uh, we, we uh, applaud the beautiful and the youthful and the athletic and the unique and uh, all these marvellous um, attributes of, of human achievement and personality. We, we uh, worship and exalt the expensive and the rich and we do this in a very kind of limited human aesthetic and definition of how we see human aspiration and human success and human achievement uh, to be. But Jesus didn't really meet any of these standards. 
And so people were offended by Jesus' birthplace, they were offended by his parents, they were offended by who they understood him to be and the way that he lived his life. Jesus was born in a stable, not in an expensive home. Jesus broke bread with fishermen far more than he broke bread with the rich and famous. Jesus uh, slept in the rough on occasion. Jesus dined with the marginalised. Jesus rode a donkey not a racing thoroughbred. Jesus uh, communed with the foreign woman, the, the, the marginalised, the outcast at the well. He, he reached out to the woman who committed adultery in the dust and he set her free. And so here was this man living this unexpected and somehow ordinary life. He, he begged for God's mercy and he begged for God's wisdom in the Garden of Gethsemane in his n dark night of the soul. He was beaten and he was flogged and he was abandoned. And rather than leading a, a violent uprising or how it is that, that people expected this man to, to lead their people to freedom and, and to ultimate uh, kingdom and ultimate authority, he, he was brutally crucified he, he was murdered and, and in each of these moments we, we get a sense that he somehow became a disappointment he became a disappointment to his disciples and he became a disappointment to his followers and so the question is are are we okay are we okay with the ordinariness of Jesus life and are we also maybe a little bit offended by it and moving that thought along, are we also offended, ashamed, evasive about the ordinariness of our own lives? Am I offended or evasive or a little bit ashamed about the ordinariness of my life? Because we are big on the instant and we're big on the fast and we're big on instant healing and instant salvation and instant change and uh, instant food and instant beauty and instant results. If I'm honest, I'm not so big on the consistent grind, unless it's my coffee, then I'm kind of big on it. But we're not so big on the consistent grind, and we're not so big on suffering, and we're not so big on perseverance, even though that's often the daily reality of our lives. We tell ourselves uh, things like, I'm just a parent, I'm just a student, I'm just... Uh, a, a recruitment professional, I'm just an IT professional, I'm just a psychologist, I, I'm, I'm just uh, an events planner, I, I'm just a public servant, I'm just a kid, I'm just a nurse, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. But what we see in Jesus' life is that he celebrates the ordinary. Jesus redeems the ordinary. He says, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who mourn. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus embraces and redeems the little children and the broken and the lost and the sick and the poor and the oppressed and the stranger and the outcasts. Jesus embraces and redeems the ordinary and makes it radical. 
I've been uh, following the work uh, of a researcher and a writer by the name of Brené Brown. Uh, and Brené's completed, completed detailed research on the seemingly ordinary things, things like relationships. And so she has done years upon years of research at looking at things like what it is or how it is that ordinary people manage to move into deeper connection, whereas some people don't. Why it is that some people have a genuine sense of love and belonging. Some people just really have a genuine sense of community in and around their life, but, but some people don't. And her research led her to identify one significant thing, one significant thing, one common factor in all the people who live what she calls wholehearted lives, all the people who live in a way that has this deep sense of connection, this deep sense of love, this deep sense of belonging that separates them from those who don't. The thing that leads ordinary people such as Maximilian Kolbe to make extraordinary choices. The thing that leads people who are seemingly very ordinary, have relatively ordinary backgrounds to do radical things with their lives. One commonality that makes the ordinary radical. The one thing, the one thing Brené identified, I don't know if you'll get this unless you've read her research, the one thing is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Vulnerability and whether people fully embrace vulnerability or not. Now we're all vulnerable. We, we live in a vulnerable world. We, we are all fragile. We understand that we are mortal beings and that, you know, we can't step out in front of traffic without a great mess happening. Vulnerability is part of our lives. Vulnerability is the birthplace of joy and the birthplace of pain and love and adventure. But if we're honest, we, we really struggle with vulnerability. We fight it. We fight it. We, we, we go toe-to-toe to toe with vulnerability. We don't really want to allow ourselves to kind of engage with the fragility of our lives. We, we want to slug it out with vulnerability. We want to knock it out cold so that we can be strong and we can be protected and we can, we can face the cold, cruel world that's out there. And some of the ways that we do that, and she highlights this in her research, is, is that we numb vulnerability. I don't know if you know this, but we live in Australia and at a time in history with the greatest level of personal debt and the greatest level of addiction at any time, any time in history. And I have to wonder that, that possibly the reason that we have such great levels of personal debt and such great levels of addiction uh, in our communities and in our lives is because we want to numb the vulnerability of our lives. We, we buy more stuff because it, it desensitizes us to, to, the, to the scary world that's out there. We, we want to numb the pain that, that we face often on a daily basis. We numb vulnerability. Another thing that she highlighted is, and the way that we try and uh, push vulnerability away from our lives, is that uh, we try and make everything that's uncertain really certain. And I don't know if you spend much time on, on Facebook or social media, but I, I, I think you'll see this happening. What is happening is that our belief systems, what, what we believe or we think to be true, are, are shifting from this sense of faith and mystery to certainty. I'm right, 
unless you agree with me, you're wrong, and I'm going to shout really, really loudly until you agree that I'm right, or if you still can't agree with me that I'm right, then I'm going to abuse you for it. That's kind of the way that uh, the political commentary happens, that the discourse on social media happens, is this thing of, I'm certain this is the truth. This is the only way. I have no doubt. I would stake my life on it. And if you can't believe me, then pfft, stuff you. Stuff you. I'm going to, you know, block you. I'm going to stalk you. I'm going to troll you. We make the uncertain certain. We've, we've shifted from faith and mystery to certainty. It's becoming how we conduct our lives. And we seem to be losing the art of conversation and the art of discourse and the art of reasonable dialogue and reasonable debate that says, you know what, it's okay. We can have polar views. We can have opposite views. But, but let's agree to sit at a table and have a reasonable conversation about it. We, we seem, I think, to be losing that. We're so certain and so dogmatic about things that in reality are completely uncertain. We also try and perfect. We try and perfect uh, our bodies, as you can tell. I've been working very hard on that. Not really. We try and, uh, and if we can't do that, we, we try and per perfect the perception of our lives. Social media, again, is very good for that. We try and perfect our children if we have them, or we try and perfect, perfect our friends or our partners, because uh, the alternative is to recognize when we're looking in the mirror that actually I'm pretty imperfect and maybe I just need to embrace the struggle of that. So we numb, we make the uncertain certain, we perfect and the other thing that often we do is we pretend. We pretend. We pretend that what we do doesn't really affect other people. We're not really connected. That, that the decisions that I make in my personal life and in my professional life, well, it's not going to have that big an impact when in reality it does. Our choices impact other people, whether we'd like to believe it or not. The alternative, though, the alternative to trying to minimize vulnerability in our lives is extremely uncomfortable. The alternative is to allow ourselves to be seen. The alternative is to be open. The alternative is to be fragile. The alternative is to practice gratitude and joy in every single moment. The alternative is to say, you know what, I'm just happy to be alive. I'm just happy to be alive. The alternative is to practice humility, to admit that I might be wrong, that I might not have it all together, that, that what I think is really certain may actually be uncertain, to say sorry, to admit that I might not have all the answers, to stop screaming and to start listening. The alternative is to defy apathy, to live in uncomfortable moments and know that sometimes we actually can't do a lot about them. We just have to be present and sometimes maybe we just need to pray or we just need to support people. The alternative is to love and to care deeply and fully even though there's no guarantees. And all of these things are really, really hard. All of these things are excruciatingly difficult. All of these things are radical, even. Radical. Turning up 
and being there for people time and time and time and time again when everyone else has forgotten and everyone else has moved on makes the ordinary radical. Continuing to forgive when people don't even know that they need to be forgiven makes the ordinary radical. Continuing to allow ourselves to be loved when we look at ourselves and we think, how could anybody love me, makes the ordinary radical. Continuing to give voice to the voiceless, to stand up for injustice, to, to continue to pursue uh, uh, outcomes for people that have no voice, even though the loudest voices are shouting us down, makes the ordinary radical. Continuing to love when you wonder if it's worth it, whether anybody even cares, makes the ordinary radical. Earlier this year, uh, our 10-year-old Mina came home from school, as she does, and uh, she announced at the dinner table that she was going to do Shave for a Cure. And we were like, Lorraine and I were like, oh, okay. And I was pretty sure in my head that when she said that, that she meant, you know how you don't have to shave your hair, you can just kind of colour it, that that's what she was probably going to do. But I just wanted to find out what she was thinking. And I said, well, what's Shave for a Cure? And she said, oh, Dad, it's where you raise money for uh, people and to try and prevent but also help people with blood cancer. I was like, okay, that's impressive. Um, so what colour are you going to spray your hair? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to shave it. Uh, if people can battle blood cancer, I'm pretty sure I can shave my head. I'm pretty sure that's, that's okay. I gave her opportunity after opportunity. Uh, my 10-year-old daughter, beautiful mane of hair. As a father, I was a little bit bereft at the thought of her shaving it off. Opportunity after opportunity to back out, to pull out, to even as I'm holding the clippers to her head, it's like, are you sure you want to go through this? Can you sign something, some disclaimer or something? But, and she went through with it. She raised $700. Uh, she, on occasions has moments of great self-doubt and insecurity and she wears a beanie on her head even though she's the most gorgeous young woman out of at least four that I know, <laughs> possibly five. And I look at that and I think that's the actions of an ordinary radical. We, we, we try and often come to a point where we think radical is doing something insanely crazy with our lives, that we have to ship ourselves over to, to, to the North African continent, that we have to go to the Middle East. If that's what you feel called to do, great. But I think part of our challenge is that we just need to be okay with the ordinary. And we need to be okay amidst the ordinary to make sometimes seemingly extraordinary choices that bring the radical to that situation. Many of you, each and every day, go into your households, go into your workplaces, go into your communities, go into your streets, go into your neighbours' homes, and you make the ordinary radical. And you're probably thinking, well, how do I do that? When you, when you make someone feel welcome, when you welcome someone that you've never met before, when, when you smile at them at the checkout, when, when you just do the little things, the little choices that impacts someone's life is when the radical starts to manifest in the ordinary. I'm going to finish in a moment, but uh, can I be vulnerable with you? I'm going to anyway. I really have no idea about much. 
That, that is the honest, brutal truth. The community we call found, we have a deep stirring for, for what it is that we think it might be, for how it might look, for who might be involved and, and why we believe it's important. But we're also just making it up as we go along. That is the absolute honest truth. Some of you are visiting and, and may never return. Uh, some of you are sitting there freaking out at the thought of so much uncertainty because you're probably a little bit of a control freak like me. And some of you feel liberated by ha the, the level of uncertainty that that brings. But regardless, you are welcome. And I can say that and we can put up signs and we can greet you at the door, but more than anything, our heart is that this is a welcoming community. More than anything, our heart... As is that this is an inclusive community, not an exclusive one. Where regardless of our position, regardless of our opinion, regardless uh, of potentially even our entire theology or belief system or doctrine, regardless of what stage of life or struggle that we're going through, that we can be willing over time and with trust and with respect to be vulnerable with each other, to be willing to listen, to be willing to be humble and build community, to do life together. Our distinctive, uh, it's a word that gets thrown around in church life, our distinctive as Christians, not, not even just as this community, should simply be radical love. That's it. Living as ordinary radicals in the day-to-day. And that's the journey we're embarking on. And we would love you to join us.